Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. And welcome to the Petronauts Podcast. This is a special podcast episode. This is a presentation and talk that I actually gave to a public operator. Uh, it's a very fun and sort of condensed 40 minute presentation and talk on everything going on in the global economy, in the US economy, and the global oil market. So, any one of these uh, little subsets that I talk about is basically a deep dive, a presentation deep dive in and of itself that I do do for clients. But this is it is intentional to be fun. It is supposed to be fast paced. Um, it's it's to keep you on your feet. Um, and there's definitely some sarcasm in there. It's supposed to be a it, it's supposed to be a fun, energetic talk. So I really hope you guys like it. Um, since this talk, this was given on May twelfth, twenty twenty two. So oil prices that day, just to timestamp it as I do for the podcast, were one hundred six thirteen one hundred. 745 Brent, um, seven, seven, or uh, I'm sorry, 10613 WTI, 10745 Brent, 774 for Henry Hub, and Dutch TTF was 3262. So since then, obviously, oil prices have come up significantly. And also since then, right after this talk I gave, I talk about the U.S. economy and inflation a lot and housing and, and talk about the health of the consumer and, and worries about demand destruction. But um, since this uh, presentation actually took place, Walmart and Target had their earnings calls. And I have not had a podcast where I've dived into it, but I, I will um, at some point in the near future. But Walmart and Target both had their earnings calls a couple weeks ago. They were devastating. They really took down the market. Um, Target actually, Walmart was before Target the day before. Then Target happened and Target uh, earnings, like their actual share price dropped 25%. And the reason their share price dropped was simply because they had to discount actual product to sell it. And the consumer was spending more on food than they were on um, discretionary items like bikes and TVs and things like that. So there was a real shift and change in how people were spending during stimulus check time versus how they were spending um, in a time where we have very, very high inflation and very, very high food inflation. And that's something that Walmart was talking about 12 or sorry, Walmart was talking about double digit food inflation figures um, and saying that the consumer was actually buying at, at Walmart was actually choosing to buy half gallons of milk instead of whole gallons of milk. And those are very, very serious things. So that's just put in context. I uh, really hope you guys uh, enjoy enjoy the presentation and talk. Take a listen. Um, and if you hear the voice getting a little bit weak, that's because I'm, I'm moving around. I'm pointing uh, on, on the slides and stuff. So um, it, it's a great presentation to watch or, or video to actually watch. So I encourage you guys to take a, take a watch on YouTube. But with that, thank you guys so much for listening. Bye. I know you guys have had a super technical, fun morning, probably on all the cool nerdy stuff that I wasn't allowed to hear and see about. Um, and I, I started my business and career on U.S. Shale, so I cut my teeth on everything U.S. Shale. But today, we're not going to talk about that as much, although I will close with that. I'm going to tell you a lot of pretty um, not fun and scary things. Um, a lot of the presentations I've been giving to a lot of companies, a lot of clients lately, um, I get this really somber look. And it's usually, by the way, I'm compressing this into... 30 minutes, and I'm, I'm spending a lot of time, like two hours in my first meeting with clients to, to really go through everything. So all of these things are big things. So if you have questions, like I, I'll be around you know, in your, in your hallway for a bit. I'll be certainly be around for a happy hour and happy to talk about them. But the whole point of this in understanding the macro, as you guys know, is you are a publicly traded company. And whether you're public or private, um, everything that's happening in the global oil environment impacts oil prices and will in turn impact your business at some point down the road. So understanding it, um, while it may seem a little bit out there, um, it is important. And I mean, 
I can tell you, every single Uber ride I had just on the way down here, I was asked about oil prices, and boy, did we talk about oil prices. Um, okay, so what is a petronerd? That would be me. That's, uh, I'm on a, some tank batteries. My dad was pumping oil wells. And the reason I show this is because I always say, this is a boom and bust business. And we forget that a lot in this business. I mean, I grew up around it. I spent, my dad pumped oil wells. My grandfather pumped oil wells. I'm third generation. And when it's booming, it's great. Um, and everybody, when it's booming, we don't think it's going to bust again. And when it's busting, people don't think it's going to boom again. So I would just say we have to be very careful about the current $100 oil market. It's, it's about as scary and volatile as I think it's, it's ever been. Um, and that's just a true petroner because I have a pump jack in my backyard. Um, I have a rig on my front porch as well. Uh, so major takeaways is really sort of, you know, the state of the oil market, inflation, global economy. We're going to talk about all that. Um, so we had the, the war in Ukraine, which is very, very serious, and I don't want to make light of it. Um, but before the war, we already had inflation, we had an energy crisis, and we had major issues going on with China and supply chain issues, stuff that, stuff that is actually impacting you guys on a day-to-day -day business, whether it's impacting you for casing or, or steel or, um, and not being able to actually drill wells or your service providers who are not being able to get chemicals uh, because they're coming from different parts of the world. So the Chinese supply chain issue has been raging for a while. We have zero COVID going on there, lots going on in that department. But now we have a actual war going on in Ukraine and it's impacting a lot of things, including it's really just taking this energy crisis, lit it on fire, fueled the flames, and now we have a food crisis along with it. Um, and if you're thinking about things that could you know, turn the global economy, it's not going in a great direction already, but a food and energy crisis is certainly not good. Um, and it can exacerbate war and strife that's already happening. That could escalate prices, but it can also just places like Africa and the Middle East who are vulnerable for food, um, it, it's impacting them. So it matters because all this is, uh, you know, you can debate the whole when is recession happening or not. You can listen to economists. I mean, we went from several months ago saying the Fed is never going to raise rates to, oh my gosh, the Fed's going to have to raise rates like crazy. So when people say, yeah, we're not going to have a recession for a year, I call BS. I would basically say Europe is already in recession. You are nosediving in economic growth. We're already there. Um, and I think, and China has been there for a while. They're just masking the data. So the reason in set recession matters is because that impacts oil demand. And the reason oil demand matters is because that impacts oil prices. Um, inflation and high oil prices, if you take nothing away from this presentation, it is the chart I will show you on inflation and high oil prices. And we have never been there. We, you guys have not experienced high inflation and high oil prices. And it, that is uh, absolutely damning to not just the U.S. economy, but the global economy and has very significant repercussions that people, uh, no one's really talking about. And um, so ESG and the energy crisis, it, I really do take ESG very different. Um, and you can, you can take uh, qualms with that. You can ask hard questions. You can tell me I'm wrong. That's totally fine. I think ESG has is, is really caused a lot of problems that people are not appreciating. Um, and I really throw ESG and investor pressure and the energy crisis sort of all together. And it is really important because we do need leaders, not just in not just in public companies, but in private companies as well, and in the oil and gas industry, to really explain what ESG is and how, what we're doing and, and how it's working or not working. Um, and then you, the last thing I'll close with um, is the U.S. is that there is actually a lot of opportunity because we are going to see rising unemployment in the U.S. And um, likely we're not going to see oil prices completely crash, which means that this is a good thing for uh, the oil and gas, in not a good thing, but the oil and gas industry could actually be hiring people and doing decent when the rest of the world is not doing as great. So the global economy. Um, I'm just going to say here that the, the global economy, oil prices, it, as of before I came over here, um, were about 105 bucks. 
Um, the real problem we have, and this just came out from the EIA, or IEA, International Energy Agency, I just got this this morning. Um, so that's Russian crude prices, you can see in the dotted line, you can see the big gap between Russian crude prices and Brent, um, global oil prices, but really that diesel is a big, big problem. So there's a number of different reasons we have this big you know, shoot up, and this is obviously European diesel prices, but we're talking $160 a barrel, massive problem. Um, and the first thing my Uber driver asked me is, why is my gasoline prices so high? Um, of course, he didn't care about why gasoline prices were, you know, didn't care about gasoline prices when they were low, but he cares about now that they're high. That does matter because we, folks, the industry has not done a good job of explaining and understanding, and frankly, we haven't had high oil prices. So it's new for everyone. But we are seeing, from, from a Russian perspective, the problem is that um, just, I mean, barrels didn't come off line immediately, right? We saw prices in crude spike. You know, I've been telling a lot of folks, clients talked on the podcast about, you're going to see a spike in oil prices. The barrels aren't going to necessarily leave the market. But the reality is, is that just recently, they're beginning to shut in barrels in Russia. And when you have a war raging on and you're producing 11.5 million barrels per day, the question of how long you're going to be committed to producing 11.5 million barrels per day should be questioned because you're just not going to put all that time, effort, and energy perhaps into producing this oil, especially when the world doesn't want it as much. That being said, India is taking nearly 900,000 barrels per day of this crude. China is taking tons of this crude. So lots of countries around the world are buying it. But we did see the short-term spikes. Um, and then really, the, it's about 4.5 million barrels per day over 4 million barrels per day of crude that they're exporting. Now, the problem is they're exporting 3 million barrels a day of product. And it's that product, I think, that we're really feeling is that even if it's 500,000 barrels a day, a million barrels a day that's not coming on the market, we're all feeling that on the product side. And then China is in shutdowns, and China does refine a lot of product. And they actually usually export some, and they're not doing that. So incrementally, we, this has sort of just hit the market. Um, and that's the, basically, you can see that Russian oil products demand has come down. But that's also a signal that, um, it's not moving, so that's why they're taking it off. Now, I personally think that uh, natural gas prices are probably as big, if not bigger, of a concern than oil prices right now for not just the U.S. economy, but the global economy. And I say this for a bunch of different reasons. So, Dutch prices, this is your European natural gas prices, uh, about 30 bucks per, per MCF right now, and that's, that's U.S. natural gas prices. That's hugely problematic, um, and when you're an economist and you spend time looking at a lot of data, it looks, a lot, it, it looks a lot like 2007, 2008. It is not good. Um, but the problem is that natural gas is something we're using in our electricity. We're using it to cool our homes. We're using it to heat our homes. And like food, it's not something that you sort of turn off as easily. We can decide not to fly as much. If, and we have seen a massive surge in, in airline prices. So oil prices, I would say $100 oil, that's not the kicker to the, to the economy. This is a much bigger issue. Um, and something to watch. Now, we had inflation well before the war in Ukraine. It's been going on for a long time. It, we've had month over month persistent inflation since early last year. Um, the Fed is beyond asleep at the wheel. They are beyond behind the curve. And the real problem is that we have led the world in inflation. So we um, are, between 2019 and 2021, the US was right up there with Brazil and Turkey in terms of inflation, which is not categories that you want to be in. So this is a problem in that we, in, everyone in this room has not seen this level of inflation probably for, maybe when you were much, much younger, you saw in the 70s, but this is the April 2022, 8.3%. The problem is you can see 2007, 2008, we're way above that. Um, and the last reading came in 0.2% lower, but the problem was it, it was basically revision of data. It doesn't really mean much, and it's not coming down. And the Fed has just now raised rates. So they had all of last year, all of this year to do it, and they just now did it. So they are behind the curve, and the problem with that is 
is that they're going to have to slow down the economy in order to fix that. And that has repercussions, including oil demand, but also unemployment. Um, now, this WTI futures, the only reason I'm showing this is because in every earnings call, you know, across the board, um, we always talk about the macro, and everybody sort of opens up with the macro. And they mention strip prices and forward prices. I don't know about you, but I've never actually seen oil prices look like that. That perfectly beautiful little curve over time never looks like that. It looks like ridiculously crazy. So if we're expecting that, we should not be. That this is not going to happen, right? It is never going to look like this. Um, and it moves every day. Oil prices went up five bucks yesterday, so the curve moved up across the board five bucks. So all the curve is telling you is what the future, what traders think the future of oil prices look like today. And if prices go down 10 bucks tomorrow, that will go down with it. So it, it's good for some things, it's not good for a lot of things, um, but it's something that as oil companies use a lot. And so it's important to think about how, how you think about it. It's not bad to think about it because it's, it's what we have to use, but it's not perfect. Um, and it certainly, I don't think, how you, you want to necessarily plan your business um, because the market can, can really hit you at later if you don't uh, hit those targets. Um, so global, U.S. and global GDP um, has contracted. I mean, the IMF is revising GDP down every, every quarter. Um, U.S. GDP growth contracted this last quarter. I do think that the consumer is probably not as healthy as people think they are. Consumers are starting to use their savings because inflation is so high. They have lots of savings. There was massive fiscal lags that we, we absolutely still have in the system. The reason we have two job openings for every one applicant is partly because of these fiscal lags. So one of the biggest questions I always get from people is, how come we don't have enough people working? I mean, in this oil industry is really feeling it. Truck drivers, sand, I mean, you name it. But it's every single industry across the globe. And that's because we put $27 trillion globally into the economy that didn't exist before 2020 and then we just thought everything would be fine and it's not fine um, so student loans just student loans for example the not paying back of student loans which students haven't had to pay for two and a half years has been equated to about 300 billion dollars that people haven't had to pay that 300 billion dollars gets turned over and spent into other stuff all that all these incremental things not paying rent for for two years incrementally adds up people do have savings but they spend it on other stuff and that fuels inflation now, we have this major energy price growth. So this is a great, great report that came out from um, the International Monetary Fund, just came out. And they go back all the way to 1970. And this is what's really important is that it's a percentage growth that this is energy price growth. So we're, near, we're at like a over 400% energy price growth globally. We are at uh, over 200% fertilizer price growth. This impacts food, this impacts farming, this impacts everyone. And let's you know, think about diesel, think about um, fueling your tractors, which my family's farming right now, and they're complaining about diesel prices, and food price growth, which is, which is huge. So all of that is really scary and really damning uh, for the US economy, or for the global economy. Um, the war in Ukraine, the only reason I put this up here is that to say it's not going away anytime soon. These are snapshots from January 25th, February 24th, March 8th, and May 10th. You know, the map has changed, but it's very much entrenched um, now in the eastern part of in the eastern part of Russia. Finland today just announced that they're uh, they're going to be joining NATO. So they're starting that process. Sweden's going to announce it this weekend, and boy, has that pissed off Russia. So if you think this is over, it's just it's not over, um, and that is a real change in in tune from Finland because they were definitely not going to be a part of NATO, and now they are uh, because people are nervous at home. Russia, China, this has been going on a long time. I'm sure you guys have all heard this joint statement. This is the, this, uh, you know, friendship without limits. It's actually a quote, there are no forbidden 
areas of cooperation. That's what the joint statement between Russia and China said on February 4th when Putin went down to um, Beijing and they did the Olympics there. Um, that was February 4th. The idea that Beijing did not know what Putin was doing is absolutely ridiculous. You can go back through um, a lot of Chinese literature and Chinese media, which I've done, and you can see that Putin has been, I mean, the war in Europe has been on kind of teed up since April of last year. You know, that's when stuff started happening. That's when people were starting to follow it. So this is not new. And Putin has been, you know, doing interviews with the People's Daily and doing stuff in China for um, well throughout 2021. So none of this is really new, but it is very serious in terms of how these guys are cooperating uh, and the supply chain issues and everything that we're feeling because China is importing a crap ton of Russian everything. So the day the war, uh, the day the war started, the next day they said they're going to be importing their grain. So they are funding this war. Um, so and we're sort of not paying attention to China quite as much because everybody's really focused on energy prices and everybody's really focused on Russia and Europe. Um, big problems, and this does impact everybody's business, but definitely um, service company supply chain. Lots of folks, if you guys are exposed to that, you're feeling it. These are days to ship from China uh, to Europe um, and the, from, from China to Europe and the US. Sorry if that's incorrect. It went from you know sub about 30 to 40 days to over 120 days now. So we have stuff that people have purchased a long time ago, um, and it's still in the ships and it's still waiting to get to ports. And we have all this port congestion because of their zero COVID strategy where China's just shutting down cities left, right, and center. Shanghai is a city of 25 million people that they shut down for over a month. That is insane. And that has had massive, you know, catastrophic, you know, human issues, you name it. Um, it's a really big deal. But the impact to the supply chain stuff is really, really big as well because people have tried to cancel these orders. And the fact that people have tried to cancel these orders tells you something about the economy. It also tells you something that we could end up with a lot of inventory that people thought we were not gonna have for a lot of things when all those ships arrive. Um, and then we may have too much inventory and earnings are already not looking good. Um, so I'm just saying like, it might be a good thing. If you're looking for some stuff that you thought was gonna be very expensive, it might not be so expensive because it might just land up on these docks. You might have to go to California and pick that up yourself. Um, but it's there. Uh, so, Saudi Arabia actually, a couple ministers, so um, the, the Saudi oil minister and the uh, United Arab Emirates oil minister, you know, I hate to say the same things that they do sometimes because they are not our friends, uh, you know, we, we should not be thinking that they are. However, this is a quote, and I, I was listening to this yesterday, so the Saudi oil minister is basically saying he's concerned with the sustainability of the energy system altogether, um, comprehensively, he's concerned about the sustainability of the world economy, and he's really pretty pissed that everybody's focused on high oil prices and not high gas prices and everything else. He's not completely wrong that they can't just jack up a bunch of production and then hope everything is going to get better because that won't solve, you know, they could jack up a bunch of oil production. It won't solve the natural gas prices. It won't solve all this stuff. Also, it is called OPEC plus for a reason, the plus being Russia, and they are in bed with Russia. So they have not, they won't even say war in their uh, the OPEC document that comes out every month. They won't say the word war. They call it conflict. I think they accidentally said war in the month of March, um, but they are concerned about demand. So we, Remember that OPEC is very, very good at one thing, and that's supply. They're not good at demand. So um, none of us are really good at you know, predicting and forecasting demand, and so that's why we have the oil prices that sort of go everywhere. Um, electricity prices are up. Food inflation is up. Okay, housing, just remember this. This is one of these things. This is U.S. household debt. So in the U.S., in, in 2021 alone, $1 trillion of debt was added. That is the single biggest increase since guess what year? 
2007, 2008. So massive increase. And that is because, as you all know, home prices are through the roof and everybody's buying them. So um, it's a really big deal because all your probably financial advisors and everybody always say the same thing. You know, housing can't go down. We don't have enough inventory. It, there's only one trajectory, and that's up. That's what a lot of CEOs said about oil prices a couple quarters ago as well. Um, but the problem is, is that that's debt levels. And, and yes, more like the health of those mortgages and everything are better. But the problem is the sheer debt levels are huge, and the the mortgage payments are huge. Especially now, we're probably going to see some cool off because we have mortgage rates hitting nearly six percent. Um, and lots of people will comment and say, okay, well, in the 80s, interest rates were much higher. But it's the speed of the increase of the rate hikes that matter that, that cools things off. This is the average home price in the U.S. is over five hundred thousand dollars. This is the average mortgage size. And if you can look back to 2007, 2008, it was about $200,000. And it is now, um, for the average mortgage size is $450,000. And many of you know, they're much bigger than that because if you're buying a million dollar house and you're putting 20% down, which is a crap ton of money, um, you have a big mortgage payment. And the reason this is so relevant is because the Fed has to cool off the economy. It, the Fed has to raise interest rates to cool off the economy. And people are not talking about the big thing in this, and that's unemployment. We have 3.6% unemployment. And most economists are saying the Fed will have to take unemployment above 5% in order to get where they want to be. So that means people are going to start losing their jobs. And I have a feeling that all those couples that bought those homes at a million dollars that raised those prices up there, they were banking on both of them having a job. They were, got a big, beautiful home, and they thought, we're going to live here forever, which is just ridiculous. You're never going to live there forever. And you're going to have to be flexible with your jobs. I mean, we had all these things in COVID that drove people building beautiful kitchens and living in your house forever and extending everything. I mean, and all that was pulled out with equity on your homes at very low interest rates. So now people are going to lose their jobs and they're going to have all these high mortgage payments. So I do think that's troubling, but I really think people are not paying attention to the job losses. And this is not to say this is a good thing for the industry, but this is where actually our industry, oil and gas, it, it probably is not going to crash in terms of prices, which means we will be hiring these people. And that is a big deal. Um, and that's a message that needs to come out as well. But that's unemployment. This is, you know, on the Phillips curve, this is nerdy economics, you have inflation and unemployment. And I will point out, you can see this is 2010 to 2020, that's unemployment, just rock bottom like crazy. And this is inflation, just pretty steady. This is, you know, 2008 came down, and then it's been really, really flat. And then inflation like this. So where you want to be on the Phillips curve is the low inflation and low unemployment. And we are, um, we're not there anymore. So that's, that's not good. Um, Chinese employment, the China story, I won't get into it because I don't have enough time. It is something you absolutely need to watch. You're hearing probably about the property sector in Evergrande. It's way worse than you hear. Um, I spent a lot of time talking about it in my latest podcast. You can take a listen to it. Um, but it's a very, very big deal. And um, a Chinese unemployment is going up. And these COVID lockdowns are just very problematic. That's housing prices and the, the pricing coming down because they just have overbuilt everything. Um, we're going to skip over this. That's Russian crude oil exports, which we talked about. Um, so Russia and Ukraine are exporting more than just um, oil. They're exporting mineral, or metals and, and food, and that's what's really driving this, the, the significant pains that we're seeing, not just in Europe and elsewhere. The percentage of imports that EU is getting from Russia, that these are the, that's a percentage, nearly 45% of coal, um, over 30% for natural gas, and about 20% for oil. And these are rough numbers. I put every European country in this. Um, so you can see it's their market, the European market, just because a lot of people don't do this and you see percentages, I want to do it. 46 BCF a day is basically their gas market and over 12 million barrels a day pre-COVID was their oil market for Europe. And the real problem is that this 
red and maroon thing. You, I don't know if you can see this too well. But this is domestic production in Europe, okay? And this is where I really think the ESG thing and investor pressure is super serious in America because we, we are going on this track. We are all about reducing our production in America because we are going to reduce our demand down at some point in the road. Now, Europe's been doing this for a while, and you can see their production has declined. That's Russian imports in, in orange. And yet their consumption for natural gas is basically flat, hasn't moved at all. And trust me, that's what, that's what is happening here. We're, we're not going to change our consumption. We're going to have to keep using it. Um, but we're going to try to change the production. And that is very problematic, and it's exacerbating the problems we have. Now, global oil demand and oil prices, and I really emphasize how healthy the global economy and the U.S. economy was when prices were low. It was hard for our business, for sure. It was not great. It's not fun. $50 oil is not fun. $60 oil is a little better. $70, my goodness, $75 is great. But think about it now. If prices were to go to $75, people would freak out. At least people in the oil industry may freak out. And $75 is a pretty healthy level. I know you give me that look, but trust me, CEOs and, and folks would freak out a little bit because that strip price would look different. Um, but the point is, is that lower and stable prices are very healthy for the economy. This is global oil demand and oil prices. You can see a 6 million barrel a day demand decline after two major price shocks. So this is the 1970s. Just for perspective, we're going from a few dollars a barrel to nearly $40 a barrel very, very quickly. Two price shocks, Arab oil embargo. One of those was a real supply shock. One of those was a perceived supply shock. Um, it wasn't actually real. But what happened to global demand is it... It dived. It took over a decade to recover globally um, because it, it just had to, and it was recovering on lower prices. And then look at this. Look at this low, steady oil prices and the steady growth in oil demand. It was very meaningful. It helped a lot of countries sort of come back up. Um, 2008, we were the major losers in oil demand. We, we led oil demand declines. Only 1.4 million barrels a day globally. Um, and then prices came down. And that's really when demand recovered was because prices had come down because of shale. And this is the, we think about these buckets of prices, and I think it's really important to think about the new $100 oil and being careful with that, is because 2000 to 2007, $44 oil on average. 2008 to 2013, 88 bucks on average. And then 2014 through all of 2021 was $58 a barrel. And that was when we had this massive growth and where we had a, also a booming economy, not just here, but in Germany and everywhere who uses oil and natural gas was very, very healthy for the economy with these low and stable oil prices. And global GDP and oil demand, it's these orange and green lines, they track in line really well. So when I was telling you about those revisions in global GDP growth, when global, global GDP goes down, so does oil demand. And when oil demand goes down, so do oil prices. So they track in line really nicely. So we want stabler, healthier prices. We don't want crazy in the sky prices. And with all this being said, I don't actually think oil prices are going to crater. Okay, I don't think we're going to see, or sorry, demand crater. So the black is coal. This is global coal demand, global gas demand, global oil demand. And the last year where it dipped is 2020. But it's not. I don't think it's going to crater. I think it's going to maybe. We're talking about a hundred million barrel a day demand market. And we may see 98 million barrels a day, 99 million barrels a day. But if we're producing 100 million barrels a day, that's what slips the market. So the U.S., and this is where it's a little more pronounced, and we are, we are a 20 million barrel a day market that we consume. So we're 20% of the U.S. oil demand market, um, and we're producing 11.5 million barrels per day. So this is what that same chart we were looking at before for the globe. This is, what, this is U.S. production in black. This is demand in red and oil prices here in green. 
And you can see we lost 3.7 million barrels a day of demand, took a long time to recover, took all the way until 1998 to recover. That is a huge deal. So when we talk about demand destruction, it's very important to think about this, the demand destruction. Um, so it recovers, and then when we look at the 2007, 2008, the correction, this was very severe unemployment. We had 10% unemployment in 2010, I know, because that's when I came out of school was trying to get a job, and holy crap, it was awful. Um, and it was very real, and it impacted oil demand. And then oil demand recovered on this, these lower prices, um, and which was this, this is the takeaway chart. So if you take nothing away from this whole thing, this is high oil prices and high inflation. So that's inflation in red, and that's oil prices in green. And that goes back to 1973. And that is a massive problem because, trust me, the Fed has not dealt with it. Your financial advisors have not dealt with it. No one's dealt with it. Um, and it is a very big deal. And it's probably not going to last long, I think. I, I mean, I, I don't know exactly persistent inflation. But this is one thing that nobody charts us. I don't know why, because it's kind of nerdy and cool. Um, this is oil demand in the US and housing prices in the US and they move in nearly perfect lockstep. Um, the remember to be humble, so I'm gonna be wrong, and I will say that. Um, this is why people actually, I, this is something you have to do all the time and revise this and study it. Um, but when we look back at the International Energy Agency and we look back at OPEC and EIA, they always do these annual forecasts. And when we look back at crises, like 2020, like now, but when we look back to 1998 in the East Asian financial crisis and we look at the dot-com bubble and we look at the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, you can see a very clear trend. And basically what happens is whatever's going on then, it's how they project things going forward. So if oil prices are high, they think prices are going to be high. This is a chart from the EAA from the year 2000. The high oil price to 2020 is obviously it's flat, of course, because it's perfect. Um, it's 30 bucks. So that's just ridiculous. I mean, it's a $30 a barrel. But what happened is their expectations are, a couple of big takeaways are that the lower the current oil price, the lower the price outlook, the higher the demand projection. So they think lower prices, higher demand projection. That hasn't actually worked out in reality. The higher the current oil price, the higher the price outlook, and the lower the demand projection. Now that could be the lower demand projection. The reality is, is that previous outlooks underestimated supply and overestimated rising price levels as well as demand. And the last 10 years have shown supply to be higher and price levels to be lower. So in my entire career in this business and many of you here, we have surprised the upside in oil production every time. Every time people say we won't, we surprise the upside. Um, so I think we do have to be a little bit careful there in thinking about where oil production can go. It's got a lot of running room. And I have no idea how much I probably have kept on my time. You have time for ESG. Uh, yeah. Okay. We have three minutes. Oh, three minutes. Okay, well. Okay. Go fast. Yeah. Okay, so ESG investor make pressure. It make it five. Okay. This is a... <laughs> This is, uh, this is just a picture I was taking on my way home. This is a Hayden power plant that Excel is going to shut down um, along with many others in Colorado. This is a coal-fired power plant. Um, the ESG and investor pressure, I, I throw this in with regulations and policies. It's really, really serious because it's something that everybody's crazy about and got really excited about in 2021 at when, when Biden took office, and it does correlate very nicely together. And then we had, you know, obviously engine number one getting on Exxon's board um, and everybody, I mean, and then we had big changes within Chevron, big changes within Shell, all actually the same day. That was a big board move in, in May of 2021. Um, but the real issue with this, and I, I take, I, I mean, every panel I get on and everything I speak at, I clearly am, am the only one that wants to go against most everybody on the panels. 
for ESG, and I have a problem with it, and that's because we have an energy crisis. Um, we don't have enough investment in, in oil and gas, and um, we're talking about how we're investing in this stuff, but we have trillions of dollars being pulled out of the system that's going into green stuff, and the problem is when you're investing in lower carbon, you are investing in lower energy. So great for you if that's what you want to do, awesome, but you have to realize that these are low BTU outputs. So you know, Exxon putting $2 billion of CapEx in 2023 when oil price is going to be $100 a barrel is, I mean, that's a lot of wells that you're not drilling. Um, and that's a big deal because those, the output, the energy output of that two billion is really low because it's, it's literally, I mean, it's just low energy. It's, it's, we're talking about wind and solar that's gonna give us a lower output. And the problem is, is that we're struggling. I mean, wind right now and solar is, I think solar is 3% of total US power. Um, the, of generation capacity, 3%. And the problem is in the US is we are not able to build the transmission lines because of all kinds of reasons, and probably not gonna be able to, but we're gonna build up all this stuff. And this is just the percentage of CapEx from companies going. Um, the energy crisis, I'll, this is one slide, and, and it puts it in really good context. This is from the United Kingdom. This is from September of last year. And just because you build out lots of wind and solar capacity, and, and I'm not saying if, if that's what you wanna do, great. I have a lot of issues with it for other reasons, but so they have lots of offshore wind, offshore onshore wind, solar, hydro, bio, waste, et cetera, right? This is the capacity the, in megawatts of this is the, the capacity basically change in renewable generation capacity between Q3 2020 and Q3 2021. So year over year change. And what happened was this is basically your catalyst for the energy crisis. It was happening before this war in Ukraine. It was actually happening, it started in December of 2020 um, when we had a very cold winter in, um, in, in China. And so China was ramping up using a little gas, but no one was really paying attention. Then we had kind of an unseasonably cold spring in Europe in, um, in the spring of 2021. No one really paid attention because gas prices were cheap. But they drew down on all their all their stocks and reserves, gas, you know, everything in storage. They were drawing down on it, and they weren't investing in oil and gas because they don't like it anymore. So um, they just it literally just was not a priority. And then it comes into the summer, and the problem is everybody's renewables, especially hydro, not ripping. It's just it's just reality. When the sun is not shining, your solar doesn't work. When the wind is not blowing, the wind does not work. And when you don't have enough rain, the hydro does not work. And the, the real catalyst. It was China where they didn't get enough rain last summer and they have 17% of their grid is hydropower and so they didn't have enough power and, and they didn't have enough sun, they didn't have enough wind and they're just drawing down on coal and natural gas like crazy and it's causing ripple effects throughout the world. So it started there but this is September in the UK and they didn't have enough sun and they didn't have enough wind and they didn't have enough uh, hydro either. So all of the renewables weren't working as well. So even just a little bit of a reduction was a problem because then they had to draw, then they had to go to natural gas. And that's fine. They have all these backups everything, but they didn't have the natural gas. And so everybody was doing this and then realizing, hey, we don't have enough natural gas. That's what drove the price spike up. And that's where we saw the big price move in oil prices when we saw $80 last year was because we had about, we had a lot of fuel switching from natural gas to oil in power plants because it was cheaper to do that and we didn't have enough natural gas. Now they're just completely screwed because they don't have enough of anything and prices are through the moon. Um, but the point is, is that that's your sort of crystallizing your energy crisis. Um, the Security Exchange Commission, and I had all these slides but I took them out because I knew I wouldn't have time, but you can go day one to day 30 of what happened in the administration from revoking Keystone XL to getting rid of permits to pausing all new leases on oil and gas to last night they just canceled the lease sale in, in um, Alaska and in offshore Gulf of Mexico was canceled last night, um, even though it's probably illegal, but canceled anyway. Um, SEC proposed rules, 
Very, very serious. This is scope three emissions are mentioned 344 times. This is your SEC proposed rules on climate change. So if you're a publicly traded company, we're talking scope three emissions is end user emissions. This is super scary because it has, um, I mean, it's not just oil and gas, but it will impact everyone. It could completely distort the US oil and gas market, could completely distort the global oil market. I mean, it'd be damning for the US. This would, could literally just take our country and, and nosedive it if we're, if we're regulating scope three emissions. So very, very problematic. It will be my, it's only 600 pages. It will be my light weekend reading. Um, this is federal onshore drilling permits. If people can talk about the, I, I hear a lot of industry leaders, you know, Toby Rice is talking on a lot of panels. I was on a panel with him in the Marcellus. Um, you know, he, this is CEO of EQT, you know, and, and he says in his earnings call how they, everybody's saying, well, we feel the, move, the needle moving a little bit in our direction. The problem is you may feel that moving. You may hear things like we're exporting more LNG. We're, the administration has not done anything in Washington to actually help with that. And the permits, we can see that their permit approvals have nosedived. But there's nothing changed in Washington in terms of actually accelerating permit approvals for LNG or anything to actually move the needle. And we can see ESG pressure in public companies. These are private companies and public companies. These are private versus horizontal well completions in the lower 48. These are private companies off to the races. And that is public companies that have just continued to decline. And that is your ESG investor pressure. That's also oil production and your output. And that's very serious. Uh, Chinese consumption, that's power consumption, clearly a lot of black, that's coal, um, big deal. So when we're talking about ESG and you're talking about uh, if it's about CO2 emission and lowering it, it's not happening um, because it's all, this is all coming from China. Um, that's global CO2 emissions, just so you know, that's black, it is global, China is in red, so that's China using coal. China is building out right now, they have a energy and food security, two main pillars are right now for their economy is energy security and food security. So they are ramping up coal output to, con they don't want to be caught in the same position they were in last year, so they're ramping up coal output like crazy. They are building out. When you hear industry leaders say they're building out a coal fired power plant every week, they absolutely are. And they're actually building out the renewables right in tandem with coal fired power generation so that when renewables are working, they have the backup, with, they're not using coal and they can save on the coal, and they just move them out together. It's opposite what everyone in the world is doing where they're building out renewables and taking off that coal. This is about energy security for them. It is not about reducing emissions and the only benefit, the talking of reducing emissions really helps them because they are the ones selling the wind and selling the solar because it's all made in China, um, all made from coal. And that's where, so they are literally causing the problem and selling us the solution. It's brilliant. Um, I mean, it, it really is. The International Energy Agency, this is a quote from them in 2020. This is a really big deal. The IEA has made its own position clear. Since the, since the start of COVID-19 crisis began to emerge, we have been leading the, we've been leading the calls to put clean energy at the heart of the economic response to ensure a secure and sustainable recovery. So the IEA went from a group that gave us data that was supposed to literally be regulating um, how much stocks we had around the globe be, to becoming an ad advocacy group who was telling us to stop investing in oil and gas. Everyone stopped investing in oil and gas last year, even though we have a shortfall right now, so it would all be screwed but they're gonna to continue to say that. And then there's, this is their renewable outlook. So it's completely based upon, the whole net zero for them is based upon two things. It's wind and it's solar, and it has to go from this to this by 2050. Now, I don't know if you saw the McKinsey report that came out, but the cost for the energy transition they're saying is 275 trillion between now and 2050. So 9.2 trillion a year, which would beyond bankrupt um, the global economy, US economies, I mean, it's Bananaville. Um, but China, and I know people who listen to my podcasts and people who know me or know anything about me, 
the Chinese thing's really, really big. Um, so 75% of, of solar panels and polysilicon is coming from China. The majority of that's coming from Xinjiang, which is um, well, well documented. Uh, one to three million Uyghurs, Muslim Uyghurs in some form of internment camps. And this is from the Chinese five-year plan. Brilliant document. Tells you everything they're going to do in the future. And this is the province of Xinjiang. And you can see these wonderful arrows. This is, you know, it's basically a powerhouse for energy. Coal, solar, wind, you name it, everything. So that's ESG, right? That's, that's what's going on. Where it's, I wouldn't say it's all for naught, but really when we talk about the utilities going crazy and your electric bills going up because we're adding renewables so crazy into the grid, and then you see the outlook of how much it's actually impacting CO2, which is very, very little, and the U.S. oil and gas industry contributes 1%, 1% of CO2 emissions is total with the entire U.S. oil and gas industry from production is for CO2. So we're going to kill ourselves for the 1%, fine, we'll do it, but then what? And I would say when you give a mouse a cookie, he wants a glass of milk. So I really don't think it's about just CO2 and keeping this business up, you know, up and running. I don't think that's the end goal. Um, shale is doing more with less. We're producing 120 BCF a day of gas. We can solve this global uh, energy crisis. Um, we are doing that with only 138 gas rates. Um, production, product, productivity, you guys all know this. You guys have been talking about it. I love ripping into this stuff. I don't have access to your awesome data. But this has normalized the decline curve for all basins in the US. And incrementally, we've improved. Now, there's lots of reasons for this. But even just a smidgen is a big deal. Because if I'm, when I'm speaking to Saudis or I'm speaking to folks in Oxford in Europe, they don't believe this. And they haven't believed it for 10 years. So it's something that people get wrong. Average ladder lengths being 10,000 feet is a really big deal. All these incremental efficiency gains in light of all this inflation and craziness, I would just say, and I'll end, is I wouldn't bet against US oil and gas. I would not bet against this industry. I sure as hell wouldn't bet against private operators because they're going bananas. Um, these are private rigs. Those are public rigs. Um, and I really think that's private ducks. Those are public ducks. It's a lesson that we have to understand and take and appreciate um, because production is coming up in the US. And with that, I will breathe. Yeah. <laughs>